Take a picture like Belfast, the Kenneth Branagh film. You and I talked about it in an earlier show. Very mixed feelings about it. I think it's overhyped. I, I think it's getting a lot of awards recognition that it doesn't really deserve. But, you know, I have mixed feelings about it as a film. However, I got to very quickly say, I saw it with what I call an art house audience, but a lot of people there by art house standards. And you know what? The audience was not only really with it, but people applauded at the end. Now, I was not among those applauding, and, and you know, we go into reasons why. But this is a case where it seems to me that although critics generally were muted in their response to it, as, as I was, and I know as you were, the audiences just loved it. It has a popular appeal there. Let me turn it back over to you on this one, because this is truly a case where it is a small film, but there, there's prestigious talent attached to it, like Judy Dench and Karen Hines and, and Kenneth Brown himself as, as the director. Serious subject matter, what it was like to grow up in Belfast back during the Troubles and so on. It has a lot going for it that way. It is well made for the most part, I would say, though I think uneven. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the Academy Awards, starting with Best Picture. And the nominees are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. So, Mike, where do you want to start with Best Picture? Well, I was thinking, Ray, it takes almost a half hour just to read the names. So um, as I was thinking about how many names there are there, it might be a good opportunity to talk about some of the relevant numbers where the Academy Awards uh, are concerned. First of all, the, the date, March 27th, so you can have it on your calendar there to watch. Also, speaking of numbers, uh, in recent years, the Academy Awards had gone without a host even, and with mixed results as to how that worked. This year, not only a host, but three hosts, Regina Hall, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes. And it's part of a larger effort on the part of the uh, Motion Picture Academy to become more inclusive by way of gender, by way of race, et cetera, in terms of the demographics of America and having the Academy Awards more reflective of that. So that's all very encouraging there. We'll see how it goes in terms of uh, the numbers on stage, if you will. In terms of the numbers here, when uh, Marie mentions you know, the 10 nominees, it's important to remember that the Best Picture category in particular, for most of the history of the Academy Awards, it would be five nominees, right? But you know what? It's sort of like the United States Supreme Court. That's set more by custom than by law. You don't have to have nine Supreme Court justices. I mean, I don't want to get off on a, a tangent there, but, you know, those numbers can be changed. So anyway, not too many years ago, the Academy decided five isn't right because what was happening was Certain critically approved, really lauded pictures obviously were being nominated, but oftentimes those pictures had relatively small audiences, like a critical darling and a cult favorite and, you know, an acknowledged classic. But gosh, for whatever reason, you know, the millions of people didn't turn out to see it. And so as the ratings started to fall at the Academy Awards, I thought, you know what, we're getting a little hoity-toity, a little kind of like highbrow here with our nominees, and we're maybe not having our finger on the pulse of America in terms of what people are actually going to see. And so what happened in this respect was the Academy Awards administration decided, well, let's take that five and multiply it and basically double it. You can now have up to 10. So now we have 10. Here's where it gets really curious and frankly kind of puzzling. The whole idea was if you had 10 nominees, as you do this year, that would allow both for the critical darlings, the pictures that you know the critics love and, and that would get remembered and this and that, instant classic, et cetera, but not a big audience. You could have all those films and you could also have some of the box office attractions, the popcorn pictures, if you will, that you know, if it's well done and well made and has an audience, why shouldn't it get nominated, right? Here's the irony. And it's just really, as I say, kind of puzzling. 
the fact that even though we've gone to 10 nominees, there are still some big box office pictures that aren't on the list, if you will. And I'll, I'll you know, cut to the chase on this. Spider-Man No Way Home was the box office champion last year. I mean, by far, it's one of the top grossing pictures of all time. It had generally positive reviews. Uh, it had a huge audience nationally and internationally. You know what? Not only is it not among the 10 nominees for Best Picture, it only received a single Academy Award nomination. And that was for, guess what, visual effects. And so something's not right there. Now, I'm not getting on a soapbox for that particular film, which I like well enough. I'm not like, like you know, it was robbed and this and that. I mean, in terms of personal taste, it's not like I'm up in arms over that. But I am kind of like upset a bit in the sense that, wait a minute, if you're going to have 10 nominees, shouldn't you at least have Spider-Man there? You know, and maybe even your TV ratings will go up a little bit on Oscar night. What do you think, Marie? And then we can get into the actual films, but this is the larger sort of political stage of what's nominated, what's not, and just the whole thought process there. You know, I think you're really onto something there, Mike, because making 10 nominees gives them a chance to put something like Dune in there, which I think is kind of on the same level in terms of being mostly popular. A lot of people saw it. A lot of people liked it. But I'm with you. I don't know why Spider-Man No Way Home isn't on there. And I don't know why Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings, isn't on there. All those movies did really well at the box office. All of them were really fun to watch. All of them were great movies. I think they all got the shaft. Well, you know, Dune's a curious case because everyone agrees it's better than the misbegotten David Lynch version of it. And (laughs) Dune actually did have almost uniformly positive reviews, positive to mixed, which was my assessment. But it also had the virtue, as Marie mentions, of being a box office hit and kind of launching a a new franchise, if you will. And we'll talk about it more in in a bit because it had a lot of nominations. But for the most part, pictures like that are notable for their exclusion, not for their inclusion there. So Marie, if we're going to be more inclusive, again, ironically, we should also include pictures that people actually go to see, that people actually like. Right, because when people think about the Academy Awards, they think best picture should be whatever they saw last year that they thought was the best picture. And a lot of times it ends up being something already that very few people saw, but then they go see it because it wins best picture. But at this point, Mike, I mean, let's just briefly talk about who gets that award. I mean, because, you know, when it's best actress, you know, she goes up there and takes the Oscar. Same with the screenplay and all the people involved. But best picture is usually not anybody anybody knows, the person who actually takes the Oscar home. Well, Marie, let me actually hand it over to you on this one, because the film that had the most nominations was Power of the Dog, which had a total of 12 nominations. The director, Jane Campion, is is actually well-known, and and the film of hers I really love was The Piano from 1993. She was nominated as Best Director for that and got a lot of recognition for the film. She doesn't make many pictures. She's made this one, and it has been, frankly, a kind of critical favorite. But let me turn it over to you, because I know you have strong feelings about it, and they're not entirely favorable. Yes. Well, Power of the Dog, you know, it's one of those things on paper that sounds like a great movie. I mean, it's Jane Campion, who is a fantastic director. That's Benedict Cumberbatch in it, who I love. I would watch in anything. That's Kirsten Dunst in it also. Wonderful. Would watch her in anything. And yet watching that movie, it was just the most boring thing I ever watched. And I'm sorry to say that because I hate to pan a movie, but I watched it didn't like any of the characters, was really relieved when it was over. And then later I thought, well, maybe I was just, you know, in a weird mood that day. Let's give it another shot. And as soon as it started up, I remembered, oh, yeah, I remember how much I didn't like this movie. And it was no better the second time around. So I will give it to Jane Campion that the direction's fantastic. The actors in it are fantastic. The story is just a dud. It has 
really unlikable characters that I never, um, you know, had an arc of character development that I found satisfying. It's one of those movies that's already enough to win Best Picture and everybody will watch it once, but nobody will go back and watch it a second time. And if you catch it on TV, you're not going to be like, oh, Power of the Dog, let me sit down and wait for my favorite scene. It's depressing. I think it's actually, in terms of a story, I think it's mediocre. So, but it's all over these awards but I think that's might be just a nod towards the amount of talent that's in it rather than the quality of the movie. You know, that can oftentimes happen. You get enough big names, impressive names, talented people attached, and there are automatically going to be, you know, awards given out or at least nominations for awards. Rather than inflict the film any further on our audience, <laughs> why don't you and I hand back and forth on this one? Because just as that film got 12 nominations, the runner-up by way of nominations overall was Dune, which had a total of 10 Oscar nominations. Let me get my take on that first, and then I'll, I'll hand off to you on this. There's enough that I liked about the film, and, and as you would expect, a lot of the nominations are in technical categories. It, it's very well mounted. It's, you know, production design, cinematography, all those things. It's a well-made film. I have very mixed feelings about it. Uh, on the one hand, yes, it's much better than the David Lynch version, but what wouldn't be? On the other hand, one reason why I, I didn't think this quite worked for me, it wasn't just that I wasn't exactly looking forward to it, you know, because it's fairly long and involved and you have to like be in deep by way of sort of like a fan club sensibility. It wasn't even just that so much as the fact that as I was watching it, I felt that there was so much exposition. There was so much laying out of character and backstory and flashbacks to this and that, that what bothered me, it really rankled after a while, was the fact that it was all exposition in this film, almost like an extended trailer, an over two hour long trailer for the launch of a new franchise. It's set up in such a way they really are looking to like, you know, have it be the next big franchise or among them. And fine, in a business sense, I understand that. But in a viewer sense, I just felt like it wasn't entirely satisfying for me because so much was being set up that the payoff for it, if you will, might come in the next sequel or, or even further down the road. What do you think of that notion? Because that's actually why I, I watched every minute of it, but I was just losing interest because I didn't feel like it was engaging me in what should be the present story. You know, Mike, I think you're absolutely right about Dune. And I think it's one of the few movies on this list that improves by repeated viewing because each time you see it, you know, more of that exposition starts to make sense. And, you know, you can appreciate, you know, the cinematography if you were focusing on something else the first time you watched it. So I think that has staying power in a way that the other nominees don't. But I also want to mention for people listening to the, this show that Best Picture rewards the money guys, the producers. So it's not necessarily the people in the movie that you recognize, but the people who made it happen. But yet it is the biggest category. That's what they kind of hold out to, you know, finally give an award to. What on this list, Mike, would be, I mean, if you were on the Academy, which one gets your vote? You put me in an awkward situation in that this is a year when I look at, you know, even with 10 nominees, there was not a single one where I would just automatically say, yes, that's my pick for the Oscars. So as we go through them, I can talk about liking this one, liking that one, mixed response, et cetera. But honestly, and I know I'm sort of, you know, kicking the can down the road on this, but there wasn't like a single film where I'd say, yes, that's it. That's the one that, that should win. How about you? I completely agree, which makes me want to ask you before we, you know, mention each one of these individually, what's missing here? What, what to you was best picture? For me, the best picture was the documentary Summer of Soul. It is nominated for best documentary, and, and I hope it wins that. It was absolutely on an emotional level, on so many levels, the film that hit me more than any other last year. And I talked to a number of people who also got really emotional as they talked about it. it you know, it, it's about a music festival and 
Harlem in 1969, all the big names. And if I start reading, reading off the names, they would fill the rest of our show, but just so much great talent on stage there. And it functions at the musical level, seeing these legends at their peak, they're really in their prime as performers, but also on a sort of sociological level of race relations, just American culture, if you will, in the late 60s. It's just an exceptional film in that respect. So I'm happy that it's nominated for Best Documentary, but when I look at a list of 10 pictures for Best Picture, if we can have any number of films, both American and, and international, on a list like this, indeed, we even have a film from Japan on the Best Picture list, why can't we have a documentary film like that? See, it's still, speaking of how films are categorized, documentaries still oftentimes can be what I call ghettoized in that respect. It'll be nominated for documentary, great documentary, but somehow it doesn't cross over to, well, is it a great movie? You know, as if there's a distinction between documentaries and movies. I mean, obviously between fiction and nonfiction, but Marie, what do you think of that notion? Because it seems to me sometimes documentaries are still sort of, not exactly ostracized or ghettoized, but there's still this sense of, well, that's a special category. And, and, and you wouldn't even think to nominate it for best picture. What do you think of that idea? I think you are 100% right. Summer of Soul would be my top pick. It was the best thing by far I saw at Sundance. It's a wonderful movie. And I thought the same thing as you, like maybe they glossed over it because it's, you know, already in the documentary category. But I thought it was absolutely stupendous. If I had to pick something that wasn't that, I would have picked, at least to be nominated, The French Dispatch which I was, when I saw it in the theater, I immediately thought, I can't wait to see this again. And I can't believe it's completely shut out of the Oscars. It was totally shut out. Now, I'm not a big fan of it, but I acknowledge, you know, the craftsmanship there. I acknowledge, and I'm not saying that as a backhanded compliment. It's a really beautifully made film. So at the level of cinematography, production design, uh, if they gave out an award for cleverness, it would probably <laughs> win the, clever, the cleverness prize. You know, I, there, so there are other films I thought were, were shut out that way. But let's get back to the list of what actually was nominated and, and moving through that list. Take a picture like Belfast, the Kenneth Branagh film. You and I talked about it in an earlier show. Very mixed feelings about it. I think it's overhyped. I, I think it's getting a lot of awards recognition that it doesn't really deserve. But, you know, I have mixed feelings about it as a film. However, I got to very quickly say, I saw it with what I call an art house audience, but a lot of people there by art house standards. And you know what? The audience was not only really with it, but people applauded at the end. Now, I was not among those applauding, and, and you know, we could go into reasons why. But this is a case where it seems to me that although critics generally were muted in their response to it, as, as I was, and I know as you were, the audiences just loved it. It has a popular appeal there. Let me turn it back over to you on this one, because this is truly a case where it is a small film, but there, there's prestigious talent attached to it, like Judy Dench and Karen Hines and, and Kenneth Brown himself as, as the director. Serious subject matter, what it was like to grow up in Belfast back during the Troubles and so on. It has a lot going for it that way. It is well made for the most part, I would say, though I think uneven. But Marie, let me get your, your thoughts on this, because this is a case where they were acknowledging the fact that this is essentially a kind of art house picture, but they did have a sort of crossover appeal. By that, I just simply mean a lot of people went to see it. And it's had a long life, actually, in theaters and beyond. So I, I was curious if that was, but not surprising, that that was picked for one of the best picture nominees, because they're acknowledging that this is, you know, sort of an art house film that has an appeal beyond that, that built-in art house audience. It also has the advantage of being a lot of the things that the Academy likes. It's very arty and black and white. It's somebody's true life story. It's Kenneth Branagh's true life story. It shows you a part of the world, you know, you don't see it all the time. It has some similarities to Roma, which swept, you know, when it was nominated. So it's got a lot going for it. But I feel the same way about CODA. 
that CODA, like Belfast, has had a chance to like take hold with people. A lot of people have seen it. It's been streamable for a long, long time. So in terms of the number of people who've been able to see it, I think those two movies have a strong audience behind them. But if they do win, there will be plenty of people who thought, oh, yeah, I thought that was a, a pretty good movie. And I can see why the Academy might have, might have chosen it. Don't Look Up, I think has a lot of fans, but only if you have Netflix. I mean, a lot of people haven't been able to actually see that movie, uh, which brings me to Drive My Car, which I really want to talk about uh, with you, Mike, because it's based on a Murakami short story. And I was in a learning community on campus about that author, so I'm familiar with his work. And I was really excited to see what they were going to do with this story. But I have to tell you, I bought the collection of short stories this comes from, and I read the story, which is only 40 pages long and took me half an hour. But somehow they stretched this into a three-hour movie. And Mike, you know, I think that's unforgivable. To make people sit for three hours plus, you know, the credits and the previews and everything, you better really have a good reason. And I really want to know what you think of this movie. But the main thing that I my takeaway was every shot that the director made he held for like an extra 10 seconds. And it just makes the movie so incredibly long. It really could have been edited down. I think it's inconscionable to take a short story that takes you half an hour to read and make it into a three-hour movie. What am I missing, Mike? This is a really bad joke, but it spends too much time on the road. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, Drive Me Car, the premise of it is, is interesting in that you have a, a widowed theater director who hires somebody to be his chauffeur. So it is a road picture in that sense. And it's very much a movie movie in the sense that it's all about the process of making art. In this case, you know, if you're making theater, you know, so it gets you on the inside there. It's, it's self-reflexive that way, that it's very much about the process of making art and of making relationships between this theater director and his driver and so on. And it's a very viable idea for a film and it's very well handled and I can see why it's getting awards recognition. And, and I respected it without really ever fully liking it completely. So this is where I agree with Marie. My feeling was, I don't mind a long film typically, but three hours has got to justify three hours. And like Marie, I agreed that there were a lot of times when, you know, you're on the road and the camera's just sitting there. It's stationary even. It's not even moving with the car. It's showing the car as it goes down the road. Now, that adds up mathematically pretty fast. As Marie said quite astutely, if you have a shot that goes on 10 seconds longer than it really needs to, okay, no problem. But you know what? If in the next scene you have a similar shot, and I could appreciate it to the level of mood, of ambiance, that was oftentimes quite effective. But at about the two-hour mark, I thought, okay, if they get in the car one more time. <laughs> and so I totally agree with you on that. But again, it's a curious case to talk about because there is a lot to admire in this film. It's really smart. It's, it's a really intelligent script. It's well acted. It's just really well conceived. But my feeling was it's also really self-indulgent that way. And maybe, again, because it's about people working in theater and in the arts and so on, that they don't have what I would call like an outside perspective, like, okay, well, your, your problems are interesting, but not that interesting. You know, we're, we're looking from the outside in, and it's not quite as compelling for us. But you know what, of all the films I saw last in the past year, I mean, it actually is among those that I have, you know, the most respect for, but having respect for it, uh, I got to say, I don't exactly want to watch it again. <laughs> Yeah, again, it's one of those movies that you'll watch one time and you appreciate a lot of the, you know, the beautiful shots and the acting and all of it, but you wouldn't watch it twice. It doesn't deliver enough for you to, to spend six or nine hours on it. So that brings me to King Richard, which I thought was actually a really good movie. 
about Venus and Serena Williams and their dad and, and how they, you know, became famous and, you know, worked their craft and all that. Very watchable. Will, Will Smith is wonderful in it. That could be like the sleeper because I think a lot of people were able to watch that on HBO Max, I believe. So it, it has been out there and people have seen it. But what about Licorice Pizza, Mike? I'm giving that a hard no, but but what's your take on Licorice Pizza? Marie, I'm giving it no, but a qualified no. Uh, here's what I mean. Paul Thomas Anderson is great at evoking nostalgia. And in this case, ironically, the nostalgia is for like growing up in the 70s, if you will. Think about a film like Boogie Nights or so on. He's really great at like immersing you in the period. And at the superficial level, how they dressed, what music they listened to and so on. That goes deeper than that. He really knows that culture. He really brings it to life again. And so Licorice Pizza, which is set in the San Fernando Valley in California in the 1970s, has that going for it. In terms of the central relationship between a, a teenager and a, a, a woman who's 10 years older, it's worthwhile, but it's also not fully developed in the sense that it, once the film evokes that setting and the basic setup with the two characters, I think, frankly, it's kind of lazy at that point. I think it, what the expression I always use is it's coasting. It's just going along with that. And for a film that's, you know, on the long side, it doesn't really take you what I call deeper. It just sort of gives you more of the same. What do you think? I think so, too. I think it sort of meandered. It was more like a series of vignettes. And you're right. What There are some things about it that it hits the nail on the head. The soundtrack is absolutely fantastic. And the details from the 70s, the waterbed stores and the pinball machines and the clothes and the hair, all of it 100% on the money. But it did remind me of Almost Famous, but not in this, the same way that Almost Famous was successful. It was like Almost Famous and uh, dazed and confused, thrown into a blender, and then you get licorice pizza. That's quite a recipe. <laughs> For Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro, his film Pan's Labyrinth is a classic. I use it in my Spanish film history course, and he's a really gifted director. My problem with Nightmare Alley is it's a period piece very much about the sort of 30s milieu and the carnival circuit. And as you would expect, Del Toro is terrific with the fantastic elements, with, you know, the bizarre, the extreme, the, the, the circus sideshow, if you will, quite literally here. But the problem is this. He does a fabulous job immersing you in that milieu. The problem is once you're in that, after about a half hour or so, you do have characters emerging and played by gifted actors like Bradley Cooper and Tony Collette, David Strathern and Kate Blanchett and so on. But you know what? The film really fails at about that point because it doesn't really develop them much as characters or really as much of a storyline. It just assumes you're going to go with the bizarre aspects of what plays out. And so for me, it really was very disappointing after a while. Always, you know, a feast for, for the eyes and ears just in terms of, you know, production value and just, you know, visual cleverness. But at a more thematic level, I just felt like it stalled about, about a half hour or even an hour into it. What do you think? Yeah, I agree on all counts. It was a solid movie in a lot of respects, and the director is very, very talented, but it, it is not Pan's Labyrinth. And I think it probably does not have a chance at Best Picture because of the sort of horror elements, because that, even though that's a, that is a huge, huge category, I'm not sure the Academy is ready to give a horror movie Best Picture. So, I mean, that's just my, maybe I'll be surprised. The last one we haven't talked about yet is West Side Story. And while I think, again, there are some real moments of beauty in West Side Story, I think it would be a crime to have it win Best Picture because the original was so much better. 
Well, speaking of numbers where the Academy Awards are concerned, West Side Story, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg has had 11 movies at this point nominated for Best Picture. It's absolutely the most nominations ever for a single director in that category. So that's impressive. But my feeling is the same as Marie's. I don't think it'll win too many awards, but the fact that it was nominated in all those categories. Now, you know, one could say, well, that's Spielberg who will always be nominated. But, you know, at the level of craftsmanship, the level of filmmaking, it is really well made for the most part. And, and so you can understand the nominations. I had a very mixed response to it. it. The 1961 film is a really strong film. It's deliberately, when I say artificial, what I mean is there was the Broadway musical from 1957, and then this, the film version of 61. Spielberg's version is more rooted in realism, having Latinx actors play principal roles, shooting more in the, the real streets and so on. That's to its advantage. To its disadvantage, from my perspective, is the Jerome Robbins choreography was terrific in the original film, very precise, very sharp. In Spielberg's film, understandably, it's looser. When you're shooting out in the street with hundreds of people, it's a bit looser. I think sometimes maybe too loose. I think there are scenes that don't hold together very well in terms of what I call Broadway choreography, though admittedly played out on actual asphalt streets. What do you think, Marie? I agree. I think we're on, we're on the same mind of that. One thing I would have liked to have seen would have been, you know, a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Rita Moreno, because I thought that was the highlight of the whole movie. It was wonderful yeah. to see her back. It yeah, sort of yeah. bridged the two movies and she was wonderful in it. I think that was a serious omission. I agree with you, not just on a sentimental note, but she gives a real performance. It's not a cameo. And my goodness, you know, that she had won the Academy Award for the, the original film. And now here she is really vibrant and a new character, if you will, that's totally justified. So it, it, when you asked earlier who was robbed, she should have been nominated. And, and it was really a shame that she did not get a, a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Yes. So, well, we're agreed on that. So we've gone through all of them. I'm going to say that it is interesting that they have acknowledged several great movie makers, you know, Kenneth Branagh with Belfast and Jane Campion with The Power of the Dog and Del Toro. And of course, Anderson for Licorice Pizza and even Denis Villeneuve for Dune and Spielberg, of course, people who put together quality movies. So from that aspect, I can see some of these choices. I'm going to say that it's going to end up being Coda or The Power of the Dog. What do you think is going to win, Mike? I'm reluctant to make a guess because I'll be wrong. I mean, I don't have a clear favorite here. And honestly, it's really an open field from my perspective. Let's very quickly talk about actress and actor. For Best Actress, it's Jessica Chastain for Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, and Kristen uh, Stewart for Spencer. My vote goes to Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, the Amo Dovar film. I think she's terrific in it. All right, Mike, my pick would be Kristen Stewart for Spencer for Best Actress. So, Mike, in terms of Best Actor, my pick is Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom for Actor in a Supporting Role. I am going to go with uh, J.K. Simmons in Being the Ricardos. And for Supporting Actress, I'm going to go with Judy Dench in Belfast. How about you? What are your picks? Well, of those categories, the one I'll lobby for very quickly here is for Best Supporting Actress, I really like Ariana DeBose in West Side Story. I think she's really terrific, and she deserves that award. And some of the other categories, like Best Actor, I don't have a clear favorite, so I'll, I'll defer to whatever you pick there. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com or also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And don't forget to watch the Academy Awards on March 27th. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. 
connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.